From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They are stories in the open air, exposed to the elements, meant to draw your eye. And Denver, in particular, is an epicenter for murals and preservation. For the first time in Colorado, they have basically pulled down the whitewashing. Normally, when you get rid of a mural, you'll just put white paint over it. They were able to peel all the white paint off without removing the mural under it. CPR and Denverite made a new podcast, an audio guide to street art and artists. We did it from the heart. We just felt the need to show our identity to our community and be proud of it because we don't see it in the history books. A preview of Off the Walls. And later, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert faces resistance from within her own party. I'm Paulette, and I donated my car to CPR. I didn't want to have to go through the process of paperwork, you know, making sure somebody else is registering the car properly. And it was a way to give back that seemed like a better idea than trying to make a profit off of it. You know, we had been through a lot, me and that car. And after I donated, every time I listen, I feel like there's a little part of me in CPR. It's really easy to donate your car at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Murals are an ode to community. They can be a symbol of perseverance. And Denver has nearly 200 of them, each with a story. Enter the new podcast, Off the Walls, from Denverite and CPR. Co-hosts Emily Williams and Kibway Cooper are here to share the debut episode. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hey, how's it going, man? Off the Walls is indeed about the stories and the people behind Denver's street art. Emily, I understand you didn't quite know what to expect when you started this project, but you kind of noticed a commonality among the artists. What? So we ended up finding that all of these artists were people who had pushed the boundaries in some ways. They had challenged people or they had done something that went against what someone else had told them. They were really trying to make some change. Oh, give me an example that sticks out to you. I'll say one that's going to come a little later in the series is we talked to some of the women behind Babe Walls. They started a mural festival for all female and non-binary artists. And they did that after they saw street art was still a pretty male-dominated space in Denver. So they said, okay, if we're not getting as many opportunities, we're going to create some opportunities ourselves. Did you say Babe Walls? Babe Walls. Kind of reclaiming that term. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Kibwe, you have a name for the artists who create these larger-than-life murals. What do you call them? I call them disruptors, to Emily's point. You know, they've been othered or pushed to the side or not really valued for what they create within their community. And rather than accept that this is just how it is, um, they went on to do incredible work and to push those boundaries of what was acceptable in spite of the lack of support they may have gotten from certain city officials or, or departments. These murals share their community, their history, and some of the major deep principles that they live by, like family, sharing. Hearing you describe that, it makes me wonder if you found murals to be something of an anti-museum. 
I think an anti-museum is a great term for that because a museum, you'd think of something that already happened. But these murals, while they have been painted, they are still in progress in the lives of the people who live around them. Mm. You know, I have found it can be challenging to discuss visual art on the radio or, in this case, a podcast. What has this project taught you about painting pictures with words? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was the the challenge, right, when we decided to do this, is how do you talk about a, a visual medium? How do you turn that into a podcast? And really, with each episode, part of the process for us, and it becomes part of the episode, was to get our recorder, get our microphone, and go out to these murals together and stand there, look at them, describe what we're seeing, how it's making us feel, and have a conversation with each other right there. Oh, how it's making you feel. That's an excellent way to do it, as opposed to trying to capture, like, every color and saying that's oh, yeah. that's oh, chartreuse yeah. in the sure. <laughs> yeah For yeah sure. yeah we we stay away from like the smallest details and it's more what is the big picture right. of what's happening while I'm looking at this mural and standing in front of it did you have to hone a vocabulary for that kibway I don't think so. You know, I think it comes from a, a little bit of practice. You know, we'll go out to a mural and sometimes maybe the first take or the second take aren't, aren't always <laughs> a great one. You know? It's nice to have several yeah, takes. It's, okay. it's because these are such expansive pieces um, and they evoke a lot of emotion. So maybe the way that, you know, someone's eyes or the colors are clashing or the elements in the background of the main focal point are affecting how you feel about the painting. Like all of those are really great ways to inform someone who's only listening what we're looking at mm-hmm. and give them this mental image. By the end of the season, you'll you'll see that we've gotten better and better and better. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'd say too, we intentionally aren't trying to learn art terms and use those to describe a mural, right? Because We are two people who are not visual artists ourselves exploring this. We want other people listening to be able to relate to it. So, yeah, I think it's kind of intentional, too. You know, don't necessarily use artsy terms, but just stand in front of the mural and say, what do you see? How do you feel? Yeah, I don't want to hear the term wheat paste too much, right? Like, yeah. Okay, before we hear the first episode, it's fascinating to me that some of these murals are actually considered endangered. How how so? Denver has really unique mural history, and that's where we wanted to start with the show. Emmanuel Martinez, in the late 60s and early 70s, started painting murals here. And this is also during the Chicano movement. Mm -hmm. And this is also his big contribution to that movement, right? He's representing his community in his murals. He's painting these murals with his community. And it was a community mural movement. But a lot of his earliest murals from that time, those are not around anymore. We can't see them. And there are other murals from that time, too, by other artists that we can't see anymore. But the murals that are left, his daughter, actually, Lucha Martinez de Luna, she started Chicano Murals of Colorado as a way to say, okay, we have lost some of these really important murals but we still have some. And how do we protect those? And how do we educate people about them and make sure that 
they're still there. Well, that is the perfect segue to the first episode of Off the Walls. But y'all stick around because I have more questions for you, okay? Yeah. Awesome. We'll be here. You can find Denver's soul on the city's west side in one of its oldest residential neighborhoods. La Alma Park, Alma means soul in Spanish, takes up a whole block. Here, Mexican-American families put down roots and formed a community. In the 60s and 70s, that community stood together against racism and injustice. This neighborhood became the heart of Denver's Chicano movement. La Alma Park was witness to history, and some of that history wasn't peaceful. Emmanuel Martinez remembers one night in particular. The police came, and they had already blocked three of the entrances and then funneled all the crowd into the housing projects. And then they stopped that, and then a helicopter came down and dropped tear gas bombs in the housing projects. Today, the neighborhood looks really different from how it did then. But there is one thing that stayed the same for decades— that's a brightly colored mural painted by Emmanuel Martinez. It goes by the same name as the park, La Alma. And for some people in this community, the La Alma mural contains a lot more than the figures and symbols and shapes you can see on the wall. It holds memories. No, that mural represents a lot of stuff. It represents everybody that lives around this community. It's kind of like home, like it's all family and, and the heart of the community. For me, when I see Lama, I think about the past. So if this mural is a window to the past, what can it tell us about the history of this place? Today, there are nearly 200 murals all over the city. There are mural festivals and walking tours of murals and a city department that's in charge of commissioning artists to paint murals. But that's not how murals first came on the scene in Denver. In the 1970s, during the civil rights movement, Chicano artists started painting murals in historically marginalized communities all across Denver in what would later be described as the community mural movement. We can't talk about murals in Denver without starting with Emmanuel Martinez, the artist who painted the mural in La Alma Park on Denver's west side. Emily, you met with Emmanuel. I know he's a legend, but what is he like? I have so much to share with you, I hardly know where to start. I really wanted to meet Emmanuel where he does a lot of his creative work, so I drove just outside of Denver into the foothills of the Rocky Mountains to Emmanuel's studio in Morrison. This is such a beautiful drive. I see a lot of green grass, red rock formations. It is a beautiful setting, I think, for an artist's studio. It has to feel inspiring to look outside and see this. This is the spot. Mm. 
Oh. Hi. 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 Good, good. Uh, this is where I work. This is my space. <laughs> Stepping into Emmanuel Martinez's studio, you are immediately surrounded by art. There are paintings all over the walls and small-scale sculptures everywhere. There's a really big window on one wall. Looking out onto that view I saw driving here, of rolling hills and red rocks. The window is, a, you know, is the best lighting for painting. So when I do easel paintings, I just bring in my easel and paint there in front of the light. Uh, and I have a nice view of red rocks. And a lot of these paintings are just uh, older paintings that I did. And a lot of the sculptures in here are uh, a lot of my works. And so I, I do have quite a bit of work here. As you can see, it's a little overwhelming. What's something that you're working on right now? Uh, there's a lot of these sculptures, and then I'm experimenting with making them look like bronze uh, with the patinas that I'm putting on them. I've produced a lot of artwork out of here, including, uh, I've done sculptures, believe it or not, up to 18 feet high in here, you know, from here to the ceiling. In Emmanuel's studio, you can see all of this evidence of his decades-long career. He's 76 now, and he's been an artist since age 13. First mural I did was in uh, the Lecamon School for Boys in Golden, Colorado, which is a juvenile facility at the age of 13 when I was serving a three-month sentence there. I uh, pretty much uh, started my career there and, and declared myself an artist. So that's the first mural I did, which was in 1961. From that moment, Emmanuel was hooked. He met an artist named Bill Longley, who took him under his wing. Longley really introduced Emmanuel to the intersection of art and activism. He's the one that politicized me to get involved with the civil rights movement and also educated me about the Mexican muralist and other artists in the world who were, you know, were socially conscious and that type of thing. At that time, I was doing like just small posters and things like that for the movement. But my real goal was to do murals. Emmanuel knew that if he was going to become a muralist, he needed to go to Mexico. It was the mid-60s, and Emmanuel was excited to see the work of the late, great Diego Rivera, who'd created murals depicting rich Mexican history. Right at this time that Emmanuel was excited about becoming an artist and an activist, he and a friend learned about a big project in Mexico that the artist David Alfaro Cicados was working on. He was painting the largest mural in the world, and we heard that he was allowing some apprentices to come from different parts of the world to help paint it, and, and we decided to go. We had 150 bucks between us, and we hitchhiked from Denver to Mexico City. You know, I, I visited as many murals as I can, and there's quite a few in Mexico City. And I was just inspired, and I decided that, uh, that I could probably do something similar here in the, in the Southwest, which, you know, hadn't really been done before. So Emmanuel came back to Denver with a purpose. He was going to fill his own community with murals. And one of the first things he did was paint a mural on the housing projects where he was living. Literally, it was a horrible place. So I wanted to, uh, I, you know, beautify 
the front of our buildings. So I painted this mural along with the help of uh, neighborhood residents there in the projects. We did it in one day, and there was, at the end of the day, the director of the housing authority came with an eviction notice. I had some people that helped me that lived in the projects also, and they were all there, and they they just spoke up and said, well, if you evict him, you got to evict us too, because we helped paint the mural. We live here, and there was all kinds of people there, and even the ones that didn't help I said, we helped, we helped. So he was in a predicament where, is he going to throw us all out for this? And if so, that was going to create a problem because, uh, you know, at that time, because of the political climate in Denver. Emmanuel was part of a larger civil rights movement, the Chicano movement happening in Denver. He was a member of the Crusade for Justice. That group supported the students who organized a major walkout at West High School in 69. The events you are seeing depict the West High blowout of March 20 on March 21 in 1969. Approximately 150 to 200 students staged a walkout in protest of alleged racist remarks made by a teacher at that school. The community was reclaiming their spaces. The pool, the rec center, the park, and fighting discrimination. As part of this civil rights movement, the community wanted to change the name of the park from Lincoln Park to La Alma. This park was becoming the heart and soul of the neighborhood. So it felt right that locals would call it the soul. It took another 50 years before this name was officially recognized. Back then, when the community chose the name, they decided to gather one night at the park to celebrate. A local band was playing and people were hanging out. And while that was happening, Emmanuel says police came to arrest a young man who lived in those housing projects right across the street from the park. The police was kind of abusing the kid a little bit physically. and, And of course, people... In the community, always at that time, because you know the we had already just went through the West High walkouts and all that. You know, they were essentially angry at the police. You know, within and it was already kind of planned because within probably ten or fifteen minutes, there was numerous police with riot equipment that came in, just moved in from all directions, and they start moving in and shoot tear gas into the crowd was to disperse and we didn't know where we were going to go you know we, we live right there across the street and you know but as as one of the leaders of the whole event you know we just told the people you know we have to get out of the park so let's just march towards the police department and protest this whole thing of them coming to our community and the police station we really wasn't that far away from Loma and the the projects where we lived my wife and my two girls, were, we lived right there in the middle of that, at 13th and Navajo. The, the whole crowd was uh, basically trapped. They got behind us, in front of us, and, and the, only way, the only direction we had was to funnel, funnel us into the projects. All you could do is just go inside. People were just letting us inside their houses. I, you know, I did at my house. And, you know, we, and, we and, and, and then on top of that, they come with helicopters to start dropping these tear gas bombs on us. But police denied it and said they, we started it all. And of course, 
the next day, the, it was on the front page of the Rocky Mountain News, said Westside Hoodlums Riot. This work Emmanuel was doing, painting murals for his community, was a big part of this civil rights movement. It was a way to give people hope and make people feel seen and heard. Emmanuel even became a city employee as a way to keep painting murals. But it wasn't like the mural movement he'd witnessed in Mexico, where the government was funding efforts to have people see their history in public art. Emmanuel and the community were really doing this on their own. I asked the city of Denver, said, look, you know, you uh, you have all these other parks that want murals, so will you uh, allow me to become a full-time mural painter? And pay, you can pay me the same salary, and, uh, and I'll just go, I'll paint murals, and, you know, and I'll save you money. Because the city was spending a lot of money removing, tagging graffiti off the walls. So it was a lot cheaper for them, since they didn't have to buy materials or anything, to have the murals painted. So, you know, so it made sense to them. So they did it for economic reasons. And, and I had to get my own materials, by the way. They only paid me a salary. And uh, unfortunately, I had to, the only paint I could get donated was toxic lead-based enamel paint. And, but that's what we painted the first murals with. We had to basically do them on our own with our own uh, sources of trying to get, raise money to paint murals in the community. For a while, Emmanuel was able to paint what he wanted to paint. Murals that celebrated Chicano people and culture. In his own neighborhood, he painted a mural on a building in La Alma Park and around the walls of the swimming pool. He painted murals in other neighborhoods too, but some people in the city weren't supportive of these Chicano murals. And Emmanuel ran into some trouble when a city councilman asked him to paint over a mural he'd helped a friend paint at the Rasa Park. They didn't want the mural there, and they asked me to paint over it. And I refused to do it, so I lost my job. So that's kind of like the history of the first part of the community mural movement in Denver. After that, Emmanuel left Denver for a few years. But he did keep painting murals in other parts of the Southwest. So let me get this straight. As long as he's saving the city money, it's okay for him to paint these murals. But the moment he paints something that they don't like with his own paint and his own supplies, with the community's support, they want him to get rid of it. And when he doesn't, they just fire him. Wow. Mm. Good job, Denver. So far, we've only talked about the original murals Emmanuel painted at La Alma Park. But he actually painted another mural there. That's the one we see there today. The one that's become a symbol of this neighborhood. But before we get to the rest of the story, I think we should talk about our visit to La Alma Park. After the break, we visit the mural. Kibwe Cooper and Emily Williams, co-hosts of Off the Walls, the new podcast from CPR and Denverite. The rest of the story in this next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner, here with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 
you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR newsroom. And we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. There are nearly 200 murals in Denver, each with a backstory. Off the Walls, the new podcast from CPR and Denverite, celebrates the art and the artists. Here again, hosts Emily Williams and Kibwe Cooper. Walking toward La Alma Park, I can see how much the community has changed in the years since the Chicano movement of the 60s and the 70s. The gentrification in this community is noticeable. On one side of the park, you see older, smaller, single-family homes. And on the other side, you'll see condos and a campus, an art gallery, a bake shop. But when I walk across the street to the park, my eyes go right to it. A vibrant, 40-foot-wide mural with two towering male figures. La Alma by Emmanuel Martinez. So when I look at it, I I feel like, so first of all, it's layers, right? First, to me, it looks like you have two guardians, right? They're guarding the picture. You have a young man and an ancient looking man. He's got fire in his hands. And then on the uh, side with the young man with the weights in his hand, you see a lot more modern roofs and chimneys and things like that. And then you see the fetus in the claws of the bird, which is also right behind the guys. And in the bird's wings, you have these two faces. And on the other side, you have a skull. I'm not sure how the skull plays in. Um, Well, I think it's more of that symmetry, life and death. Yeah, yeah. The old, the new. Yeah. So around the time Emmanuel came back to Denver in the mid-70s, He was approached by an independent filmmaker who wanted to make a documentary about the community mural movement. Emmanuel decided to paint another mural at La Alma Park, this time on a larger scale on a brand new rec center building. He painted La Alma with the community. Local kids would help him and neighbors would come by and watch as they painted. I sketch it on with a charcoal and and then I basically, it's like a big coloring book for the kids and I have to mix their colors and they paint them and then of course I I do refinement and fix up mistakes and stuff like that. There's a guy that used to walk across who lived in the projects, an older guy. He'd cross the park every day and he'd just like stop and stay there for like 15 minutes and just watch us and all that and then he'd go but every day we did that mural he's always there and I, I didn't know who this guy was or anything but you know I was I was standing back and looking at the mural and here he here he comes in the morning because he's on his way to work or something and uh, and I just asked him what what he thought about the mural he said what do you think do you, how do you like it so far and and he just said well you know I, I stop here every morning because it energizes me in the morning that was a, a real profound statement to me. And that's really what one of my goals was, is to make a, give it that kind of energy. 
When the mural was finished, there was a huge celebration in the park. Emmanuel was so relieved that this time, the community could celebrate in peace. The community, of course, the housing projects, a lot of people were there, the band, the De Leons were playing. Uh, it, was, it was a really good celebration, and I'm just glad that they didn't, the police didn't mess with us that day. The documentary, called Espejos, or Mirrors, captured the joy of that celebration. The most important part of this mural is that uh, it was, you know, with the feelings of the people around here. And that's what the mural's all about. That's what the title of the mural is. The soul, Balma. Unfortunately, those first two murals Emmanuel painted at the park don't exist anymore because the structures were torn down. But the fact that the La Alma mural he painted on the rec center in 78 still exists is a big deal. For 45 years, the La Alma mural has been a constant in this neighborhood. But that hasn't been the reality for some of Emmanuel's other murals. There's one mural in particular, Urban Dope Rural Hope, that Emmanuel painted in 77, across from the Sun Valley housing projects. And the community was really up in arms when they let me know that the mural had been painted over. Later, I, we found out that apparently there was a, some tagging being done on there, and, and they called the city to ask, how do we deal with this? And the city said, we'll take care of it, and they painted over it. I don't think they take this, uh, the, the Chicano murals uh, collection in this city is serious enough to keep you know, providing the money to maintain them because they are supposed to maintain them. There were their works of art in their collection. These murals are considered endangered historic places. They can be painted over, they could be tagged, and just from exposure to sun and weather, murals need upkeep. Emmanuel and other artists need help protecting them. And here in Denver, that help is coming from a place very close to Emmanuel. Well, for me, it's always battling with this, you know, for the United States, it's uh, the country as a whole is uh, a culture of erasure. And it always has been. I mean, we, we did that when we came, uh, came here. So it, it is just kind of history just repeating itself. And it plays out in these little microcosms like Lama. This is Lucha Martinez de Luna. She's an archaeologist, a curator of Hispanic, Latino, and Chicano history. And she's Emmanuel's daughter. Lucha has been around her father's murals her entire life. Right when I was born, my dad was painting the murals. In fact, I was baptized in the pool of La, uh, Lama Park. Yeah, right in front of his mural. Lucha leads the Chicano Murals of Colorado project. It's an effort to document, preserve, and even bring back some of these community murals, like her father's. Lucha says murals are uniquely powerful cultural artifacts, especially for communities of color. We need to really understand what is a mural. It's on a permanent structure. It's not, you know, on a canvas. It's not like something you can move around. It's not portable. It's there. 
And why is that important? Because this is like making a space for communities that have never felt welcome, have always been, uh, you know, marginalized, the whole redlining. So if those murals stay there, there's something left of this community. A lot of these murals are, um, they're portraits of people that actually lived in this community. So once that mural's gone, everything's gone. Lucha knows what murals can mean to people because she knows what they meant to her when she was growing up watching her father. You know, I consider myself extremely fortunate that I grew, around, grew up around art, where all of the art my, my dad painted, the people looked like me. So I never had that feeling that I didn't belong because it's like, wow, we're, we mean enough where we're being portrayed in sculpture and painting because they didn't treat you like that in school. They treated you like you meant nothing, that you had no value whatsoever. But so where you looked for that value was in your community and in your home. And to be able to see that in art, that's what was so impactful about these murals. It was at a monumental scale. And you, a lot of times, these artists were painting portraits of children in the community. And to see yourself at a monumental scale was incredible. And, and then to hear the remarks of the people when they were looking at these murals, it, you could tell the energy was just going into them. And their pride, too. You could see them stand up differently. Lucha says that because these murals instilled so much pride, losing one can make people feel like they're losing a part of themselves. And that's why she's so passionate about protecting them. Sitting around a table in Emmanuel's studio, I got to listen to Lucha and Emmanuel talk about murals with each other. The artist and the archaeologist— the father and daughter, equally passionate about what this kind of art can mean to people. We did it from, from the heart. We just felt the need to, to uh, show our identity to our community and be proud of it, you know, because we don't see it in the history books at school and anywhere else. So might as well do it on the murals. And, 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 and people respect that, you know, they like they they like they they like to see a reflection of themselves in a in a in a positive light, you know, and that's what it, that's what law but does. A mural can take you back in time and and tell your descendants we were here, we belonged here. That's what's so important is our descendants need to be able to link their ancestors to a space to a place. All of them. It doesn't matter what color skin you are. It doesn't matter. All of us have the right to do that. At the beginning of this story, I wanted to understand what it meant for a mural to be a window to the past. Emmanuel and Lucha made it clear to me, history isn't always in our textbooks. So much of history is left out of textbooks. History can live on walls. We just have to look more closely. I wanted to know what Kibway thought about this. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is um, a quote, which I'm going to botch very badly, from um, James Baldwin, uh, who's an African-American author. And one of the things that he said was, to be born African-American is to be born with no memory of who you are and no privilege. And 
I think about that when I'm listening to Lucha talk about the importance of being represented, of being seen in public spaces and being displayed and depicted with honor and dignity. And so when I'm listening to Lucha talk about what these murals mean to the community, I feel that deep in my bones because as a black boy growing up, that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see myself in, in, in high places doing things that were positive in the community. Representation in public art is vital for communities that have been historically marginalized. But that's the beginning of this conversation. What do you think, Emily? I think a lot of times there, there can just be a lot deeper conversation about these murals than what it typically is, which is typically just, there's this cool mural I saw on this street or this. Mm. It's, it's aesthetic. Mm. That's good. Off the Walls, a new podcast from Denverite and CPR. It's produced and hosted by Kibway Cooper and Emily Williams, who are back with us. Kibway, this is cool. Y'all have collaborated with Apple Maps on a guide to the murals and special places that you profile in Off the Walls. Just tell us briefly about that. Yeah, so uh, we collaborated with Apple Maps in order to create kind of a footprint for where these murals actually are. And as people who moved to Denver... Denver is really expansive. And so when you're listening to the episodes, what you can do is there'll be a link that you can visit the Apple Maps. It'll tell you where the mural is, exact location, as well as give you a little insight on what is in the episode. And you can access the actual podcast pertaining to that mural. Pointing you to that audio and pointing you to that place. That's correct. Emily, give us a hint of what's to come. I mean, uh, beyond, was it Babe? Mural. Babe. Yeah, Babe Walls. Babe Walls. Maybe just a little tease of another future episode. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about how murals can be endangered, and that's that's still the case now. So we have a story about a mural that a few years ago was painted over without permission. And the artist who painted that mural, he actually set out to bring it back. So his mural was completely painted over and we got to follow along with him as he was restoring this mural. Kibway, is Emily saying that this was repainted or you can actually unveil something that's been painted over? So for the or first do we not time, give this away? Well, for the first time in Colorado, they have unveiled. So basically pulled down the whitewashing. You normally when you get rid of a mural, you'll just put white paint over it. They were able to literally peel all the white paint off without removing the mural under it. Okay, I can't. So it's like a whole rebirth that you listen to throughout the episode. I can't wait to hear that. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, awesome. thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Kibway Cooper and Emily Williams. Off the Walls from CPR and Denverite is available everywhere you get podcasts. And we'll be right back as the plot thickens in Colorado's 3rd Congressional District. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Highlands Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert was always going to face a tough re-election next year based on how close her last race was. But the first test may come sooner than she expected, with a string of high-profile endorsements for a primary challenger. Our report comes from CPR's Tom Hess in Grand Junction and Caitlin Kim in Washington, D.C. In the weeks following what some call the Beetlejuice incident, some high-profile Mesa County Republicans decided it was a bridge too far after the congresswoman was recorded carrying on at a showing at a theater in Denver. Over the last two and a half years, I've, I've done my, my best to defend the, the record of, of Congresswoman Boebert. I haven't always been a fan of her, her style by any means. That's Cody Davis, a Mesa County commissioner. What she did at Beetlejuice, again, just... It wasn't a, a, a simple mistake. I've had a lot of supporters of Lauren reach out to me. Well, she made this mistake. Where's forgiveness in all of this? Um, I think, to be honest, this wasn't just a simple mistake. This was a kind of a violent departure from normal, um, from statesmanship, from character, morale, you name it. I mean, it was just kind of a violent departure from all that and just made it obvious that uh, we need a new direction. Davis has endorsed Boebert's leading primary challenger, Jeff Hurd, a Grand Junction attorney. Bobby Daniel, another Mesa County commissioner, also endorsed Heard. Daniel says she's gotten a lot of feedback on her decision. Most of them have been really positive. I think just saying what needs to be said, having the courage to just see the writing on the wall and advocate for people who may not have a voice, but they're feeling let down, they're kind of grieving. That representation and just also the state of our country right now, I think people are really wanting leaders to set a good example. And Boebert isn't just losing official support in Mesa County. Both Delta County Commissioner Don Supis and former Republican Governor Bill Owens have made the rare move of endorsing a primary challenger to an incumbent of their own party. But whether or not voters in the 3rd District are feeling the same way isn't clear. I think they're speaking for themselves. However, they are coming out of a place that's probably more powerful than I have. Mesa County voter Tom Keenan was disappointed to see local leaders hopping off the Bobert bandwagon. Keenan's at a gathering of the group Stand for the Constitution, which meets at Appleton Christian Church. The group has become a force in local conservative politics, and in this room, Keenan says they're not ready to move on from Bobert. If I look at personal issues, we all have them. I have more than one Saturday I woke up wishing I hadn't spent Friday night doing whatever it was I was doing. We asked for forgiveness. She's asked. And I know her faith. I know she's repented. And I know she isn't going to get caught up in something like that again. But there are Republican voters in Mesa County who don't shy away from a primary challenge. Susan Potts thinks the Republican officials abandoning Bober are acting prematurely and not giving her a chance to make amends. But in general, she believes primary challenges can be healthy for the party. You know what? If we don't challenge, we're not good people on our side. If we feel we can do better, we should be challenging her. She has to continue to say, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing. And try and not do those other things. 
And that is exactly what Boebert has been saying. At recent appearances in the district, she's apologized solemnly, if briefly, for the Beetlejuice incident, while trying to keep the focus on her work in Congress. This is why I introduced the Restoring American Energy Dominance Act to terminate this proposed rule and to protect American energy producers. We want to talk about the congresswoman's track record um, and what she's accomplished. That's Drew Sexton, Boebert's campaign manager. To again show that she has governed the same way she's campaigned and she's gotten results. Sexton points to changes she's pushed for and how the House operates to work she's done on local issues like water or delisting the gray wolf, which shows she's listening to the priorities of her constituents. They're not as concerned about what, you know, some, you know, national outlets may write about this or that. Um, They want to hear about how she's working for them at a legislative level. Having a Republican-controlled House has helped. Unlike her first term, she's been able to get some of her bills out of committee. And she's also changed course on earmarks, from bashing them as corrupt to embracing them as a concrete way to get money to projects in the district. But those moves haven't been enough to stave off a serious primary challenge in the form of Jeff Hurd. Dick Wadhams, a Republican political consultant and former Colorado GOP party chair, says there were a lot of Republicans who were disturbed by Boebert's behavior during her first term, but stuck with her in 2022. I don't think they're going to be there this time. I think that's where the um, the Beetlejuice incident really hurt her. I think that that tipped a lot of Republicans over. She's a perfect candidate to get challenged in a primary. Elaine Kmark is head of the primary project at the nonpartisan Brookings Institute. She says there are two situations where primary challenges tend to succeed. An incumbent that's out of touch with the district or a scandal to the point where the incumbent may lose the general election, even in a pretty safe district. She's recently had a scandal, uh, I'd say a pretty serious scandal, and obviously that would weaken her as a candidate. And obviously the Republican establishment in Colorado, particularly the former governor, um, is saying to themselves, hey, she's damaged goods. Um, We'd better get a new candidate if we want to hold on to this seat. While endorsements don't necessarily influence voters, Kmark notes it does help with fundraising. According to recent campaign finance filings, Heard has been raising money at about the same pace as Boebert, despite only announcing in mid-August. But even with all that, Heard says he's facing an uphill climb. I recognize that I am definitely uh, the underdog here. He's never run for elected office before, and he acknowledges he's not the bomb thrower that some in the district want. But I think most people recognize the value of having somebody that is thoughtful and pragmatic and solution-oriented and who works to, again, make life better for families and businesses and communities. With eight months still to go before the primary, both Heard and Bobert have a long road ahead of them to make their case to voters. CPR's Washington, D.C. correspondent Caitlin Kim and Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess. Finally today, singer-songwriter Antonio Lopez draws inspiration from his indigenous roots in the San Luis Valley. He grew up in Alamosa, where his family was also active in the Chicano civil rights movement. Through his lyrics, Lopez continues the tradition of speaking truth to power on subjects like mental health and human rights. Now based in Longmont, Lopez just released his sophomore album, Here We Are. We'll leave you with a single from the record, 
Lopez contrasts the secular and the sacred by comparing his experience with that of his grandfather, who belonged to the Catholic fraternal order Los Penitentes. Here's secular penitente. There is no back there's no out west. For the land that I stand on is where my ancestors rest. I crumple a minor, the shadows of blood low. From teenage to black long, a digger of coal. A drama, a mother, eleven under her cave. Would wash his lawn eyes, he only had to pay. He'd leave in the morning, metal lunchbox stacks. Return in the evening. Completely covered in ash Navigate the modern world With an ancient map paint A secular penny tent That comes home Singing in the rain Longmont indie folk artist Antonio Lopez With Secular Penitente His new album, Here We Are, is out now. And we're out now. That's Colorado Matters, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Herbs. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.